science. Listening to Love and Science on BCFM 93.2 FM. I'm Andrew Glester. We don't have Malcolm with us today, but I am delighted to say that I'm joined by Maddie Nichols. Hello, Maddie. Hello. Thanks for having me back. It's very good to have you here. Um, you, you've been away, you've come back. What have you been up to? Oh, goodness. Well, it's been a long time since I was last here. Um, so I'm a PhD student. Um, so I had to go and sort of bury my head and hide away and write up my scientific findings from the last three years into my thesis. Um, so I handed that in a couple of months ago. Um, and I was working on using ultrasound. We've got a story about that later. Yeah. Spoiler. Um, <laughs> which is very high frequency sound waves, um, which is also used in medical imaging. Um, I was using ultrasound to move kind of chemical reactions around and make ordered materials um so there's quite a lot of stuff for me to talk about there mm-hmm. um so i had to write all that up and i handed it in and now i'm waiting to have my viva which is where i essentially get challenged and have to defend my science from two other academics okay. which is a little bit scary um yeah. but i think i'm ready i'm pumped do you, ready. do you know ahead of time who those people are going to be yes i do so i can stalk them really hard <laughs> and like, work out what kind of science they really like yeah. and then kind of be like oh did you did you know about this development yeah. or oh this thing i did here like this will probably you'll probably like this one Um, and and then um see you follow them on twitter you see what they're tweeting about (laughs) they're big fans of exactly 2001 you go i love that film (laughs) and it's job done right exactly exactly (laughs) no not really it's uh it's a it's a tough old thing the vibe isn't it yeah it can be a few hours long and um yeah quite an emotional process uh yeah it can be quite relentless but um i'm hoping that it won't be too bad and i can then carry on with my life enjoying some of the more fun science things (laughs) and is that but is that the end of it then if you kind of if you go you do PhD there's an awful lot of work that goes into that <laughs> you do the science there's a lot of work that goes into that you do the writing up there's a lot of work that goes into that then mm-hmm. you do your viva and then there's a lot of work that goes into that is that it is it finished yeah it's a little bit anticlimactic actually um you know kind of pushing yourself to finish this thing and then you go and you hand it over and actually the big drama for me was that my thesis actually broke the printers when it was being <laughs> printed <laughs> um so they had to print it on a slower one uh, like doesn't get more dramatic than that and yeah. um, you essentially just hand it over a desk to somebody and then they're like okay right we'll be in touch about right. your viva and you're like is that it like yeah. really like my existence is now just like futile essentially <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing more for me to do what your existence um, is futile that's not the quote <laughs> <laughs> no but you kind of feel a bit like that because yeah. you just push yourself so much yeah. um so once i've done the viva i will then hopefully be dr maddie <laughs> well, yes. um dr. and then yeah i get to carry on with my life so do- and dr maddie do. and if somebody says to you what 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 are you a doctor of what do you say i say nanoscience okay i think yeah I think. I should okay. probably find that out. That's the science of the very, very small. Indeed, yes. Yeah. A thousand times smaller than a piece of hair. Okay, cool. Yeah. But uh, ultras, go on, but while we're here, before we move on, <laughs> what's, uh, what, but the, you said we've got a, a story about ultrasound coming up. Uh, yes. What, what is ultrasound? We're not going to go to that story just yet. <laughs> we'll keep you hanging on. Okay, cool. Well, ultrasound is essentially very high frequency sound. So it's a much higher frequency than what we can hear ourselves. Um, I think 
the kind of sort of threshold that like dogs and bats can hear is kind of classed as ultrasound. So it's very high frequency, which means that it's but not high enough frequency that it's going to hurt you. Um, and it's the same if anybody has had a scan while they're pregnant or any kind of internal scan of what their insides are doing in hospital. Um, that would probably have been ultrasound because hmm. um, it's not very um, toxic or damaging and it yeah reflects off of different materials and surfaces and you can build up a picture of what's going on based on the different information between the kind of sound wave that you put in and the sound wave that you get reflected back okay and it can be used for all sorts of different things yeah so one of the most exciting things that we do um or in the research that i've been involved with um is not to do with imaging um it's to do with uh, levitating things so we have a fantastic demo where we've got the sound set up and we sort of emit sound waves out and then they get reflected and where the waves kind of interact with each other, um, there's little pockets where it will lift um, polystyrene beads. And this is what they've done to kind of to evidence sort of gravity, like anti-gravity um, experiments. Um, it can't be scaled up much more than that because a lot of different kind of ethical factors come into that. So we can't levitate people, um, but Why we can not? levitate... <laughs> Well, we'll go into that another time. Okay. <laughs> but um, yeah, all kinds of ethics and volumes, and yeah. yeah. But we can levitate um, very small beads, and I think there's actually quite a trend at the moment for levitating small pieces of food or little droplets of flavored water oh. um, to kind of enhance your dining experience by um, kind of tasting droplets of stuff out hey, of the cool. air that's oh, all cool. levitating. So you can feel. I'd quite fancy that because it makes me think I'd be on the International Space Station. You know where they do the water globules in yeah, droplets totally. of water. I want to do that. <laughs> can, you, can you arrange that? Yeah, so we can set something up. Maybe we yeah. can do it like a BCFM open day or something. Yeah. We'll come down and see some acoustic awesome. levitation. Well, if you if you want to float some food and eat it, you know where to come. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, tweet us uh, at BCFM Radio. But um, I started the show before that uh, piece of music by... Uh, what are they called? Future Islands. Um, and he made me, you know, the reason I played that at the start of the show, because I was watching um, the BBC documentary last night, the new series from David Attenborough, uh, Dynasties. And uh, the lead singer of Future Islands kind of bangs his chest in a very primal way. <laughs> And when he's doing it live on stage, and it made me, it, when I was watching that programme, it made me think. I did you see it? Wasn't it fantastic? Yeah. Absolutely incredible. fantastic. If you haven't seen it yet, get on iPlayer and watch it now. Yeah. So totally. incredible. It was, uh, so it's a, if you haven't seen it, they followed the, uh, the, the, the trials and tribulations of a, a tribe of chimpanzees. I want to say a tribe. I don't know if it is a tribe. Yeah, I don't know if it's called a tribe. But the, the difference is, um, I don't know if you've ever seen the documentary Planet of the Apes. That's not a documentary. <laughs> it's a science fiction film. But it's, yeah, it's the differences between chimpanzees and us. We know that um, genetically they're not that different to us, but it seems socially they're not diff that different to us. I was talking to uh, Dr. Ben Garrett a few uh, months ago at the time of uh, Planet of the Apes coming out, and he was saying that he's lived with uh, chimpanzees and he was saying that everything that we've always thought has separated us from the animal kingdom we see in chimpanzees so if we think of fashion we've seen chimpanzees doing fashion where they've they've had the young uh, younger members of the group will wear a piece of straw <laughs> in their ear and then for a season and then stop 
goodness. And there's no, there can be no explanation of it other than they think it looks good, right? And if there's the definition of fashion, that's what that is, surely. So the origins of vanity. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and religion, there's, uh, we would say that maybe religion was something that um, mm. separates us out, but there's, there's uh, examples of chimpanzees doing sort of ritualistic behaviour in relation to things like death and birth, which, again, you would say was some sort of definition of religion. But watching that programme last night, it made me think that, well, A, the BBC keep knocking it out of the park in terms of putting them out the industry oh, thing. don't they? Yeah. <laughs> and incredible. Doctor Who, but let's not go there. And, um, and the other thing it made me think, controversially it made me think, we're not that different to apes. The only thing I didn't see, which you would see, I think, in the human, uh, the human world, is that there seems to be half the population, or there seems to be all the men are sort of fighting each other to get to the top. What we didn't see was the other half of the population. Um, so much of the of, of the female apes, we didn't see so much of them. But we didn't see. We also what we didn't see, and I don't know if these people, these people, that's a that's a Freudian slip, isn't it? These chimpanzees <laughs> exist who are sitting there going, "Look at those! What a load of idiots they are doing that!" You know, the ones who are more peaceful, the ones who are, or, or is it just that all chimpanzees are going for that alpha male position? The older ones, obviously, you've got past that point where they know they can't. They have a more kind of uh, sedate outlook on life. But, you know, what I'm trying to say is... Are there philosophical apes yeah. that question the yeah. behaviour of the other apes? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Like if one of the apes, maybe if there was like an orangutan who was like the leader and was being really, really stupid and saying really stupid things and behaving really stupidly, you'd mm. like to think there were other apes that were looking at that orangutan and saying what a moron mm. um, and overthrow that ape yes get rid of that ape. a slight digression what really got me was that they were walking upright oh yeah like actually like in planet of the apes like yeah. maybe it's just me and i haven't been watching enough videos of apes but i have never seen them walking around actually on their hind legs no. just like in planet of the apes and that just blew my mind yeah. it's like oh my god they're actually walking upright yeah. like Oh, because like when I've seen them at like Bristol Zoo, they've very much been on all fours moving around. And yeah, it was just fascinating. Yeah, no, fascinating. It, incredible. What incredible creatures they are. And uh, I, I don't know what's next week. Oh, it's the penguins and things next week, isn't it? Mm. Looking forward to that. Yeah, and uh, we're going to get on to some of the science news. But it just uh, just made me think watching it. There's so much life on this planet that is so different to us and so similar in many ways what's life like out in the universe and it's, it's a thought i have fairly often what's life like out in the universe and there is uh, a new story which came out in the last uh, few days about uh, harvard scientists talking about umuamua did I, you say it right i doubt it <laughs> but it's uh, <laughs> do you want to have a go so if you don't know what that is, it is uh, our <laughs> attempt at pronouncing the Hawaiian <laughs> word, uh, which is being used to describe an interstellar visitor. And, um, well, what is it? First of all, well, there's been discussion about whether it's uh, an asteroid or a comet. And we saw it as it disappeared past the sun in our solar system and is now careering out of our solar system uh, on its way back into interstellar space and by tracking its um, 
uh, trajectory, we've been able to tell certain things about it. And the, what you would ordinarily think, your first thought as an astronomer is probably an asteroid, right? It's probably something, uh, a big bit of rock, that would be a uh, space rock, would be an asteroid, that's come from uh, somewhere in space. This one, it turns out, has come from outside our solar system, interstellar space, the space in between the stars, probably came from another solar system, you would have thought. Um, and that is a colossally huge distance yes. for it to have come. Yes, absolutely. Like- Crazy. And this it, it didn't even come from our nearest solar system. I mean, the the the, the current thing is where it, it's being uh, narrowed down to where it came from. But I know, first of all, they were suggesting it may, came from the area of the sky, which is uh, where the Lyra constellation is. One of my favourite constellations. Um, but it, for obvious reasons, <laughs> because it's wonderful, right. and it's the name of my daughter. And, um, and uh, so, anyway, there's this rock coming through our solar system. The problem is that this rock, as it passed the sun, as you would you would expect that a, a rock, as it got towards the sun, because of the gravity of the sun, would speed up and would get faster and faster as the gravity pulled it towards the sun. It did. But then as it goes away from the sun, you would expect it to slow down as the gravity sort of holds it back. It didn't. It sped up. And the question, therefore, is what made it speed up? And conspiracy theorists, people who love UFOs and all that sort of thing, would probably say, well, it's obviously a spacecraft then. But the scientists didn't say that. The scientists said, well, it's probably a comet then, or something like a comet, because... As it goes past the sun, it would start to outgas. So as a comet, it was a bit of ice and rock rather than a asteroid, which is just rock. And as the ice would sublimate off into space and other matter would sublimate or evaporate effectively. Well, I think sublimate means evaporate without going into steam, doesn't it? Yeah, so it skips out one of the phases yeah. of matter. So it goes from solid straight to steam. Okay, so yeah. it misses out one. Okay, so that's what that means. Don't worry about that word. Basically, <laughs> evaporate. And, uh, and that outgassing, that, as that gets ejected from the comet, it speeds it up. All good. No worries whatsoever. Unfortunately for us rational scientists, uh, a very rational scientist, a professor from Harvard, has looked at the data. And what he says is that it's not behaving as though it's a rock, a piece of rock. It's not behaving as if it's a comet. And it's, well, as he says... puzzling. It is puzzling. So what do you do? You think about what it could possibly be. And what he's done with a, another scientist is to uh, look at the data. And they have, as you probably have seen in the news stories, um, said that it's possible that this is a broken-off solar sail from an interstellar spacecraft, an alien <gasps> spacecraft, or even a scout... And that's kind of what Oumuamua means in Hawaiian, a scout, which would be fun, right, if it was also that. So a sort of like a scout that's been sent to our solar system to pick up data. So an a- literally an alien spacecraft. I, I, I'll be honest with you. I saw the headlines and I thought, well, they've massively overstated that. What did you think when you saw those headlines? I wasn't really sure. Okay. <laughs> it's like, it's very exciting, but it also kind of rings about, like, but if it's not an asteroid or a comet, what is it? Do we even understand, <laughs> like, space? Like, yeah. do we understand enough about space? Like, yeah, and if it is from another sort of civilization and they've come to kind of 
check us out and see see what we're doing um why yeah yeah well yeah absolutely why um and the the thought would be because well, i mean my answer to that would obviously be because because we're here right um why would you climb everest because it's there but i mean there's quite a lot of different um theories as to you know if there is other life out there when will we find out about it mm. and one of those which i quite like as an idea um is that there are other civilizations out there and they're waiting for us to kind of advance to a stage where they will then make contact with us yeah. because we're on a similar level to them. And it's kind of like, well, what's happened that if that is how, if that is the state of how things are, what's happened that they now have reached out to us and sent this kind of messenger scout to come and hmm. look well, at maybe, us? Maybe, yes, that is a good, interesting question. I mean, we should probably work out whether it's aliens first. Mm. My, my natural inclination is to say it's not aliens, right? It's, it, nothing has ever been aliens before, so why should this be aliens? And I thought, well, I'm going to find out. And the best way to find out would, of course, be to speak to the man who wrote the paper. So here is Harvard professor Avi Loeb talking about why he thinks that this might be an alien spacecraft. What's surprising is that this object is weird and nothing that we have seen before and it has an extreme shape uh, uh, from the variation in the reflected uh, sunlight, a uh, uh, factor of five uh, to one in, or more in terms of the long axis to the short axis. Um, it also sits in the local standard of rest of all the stars in the vicinity of the sun uh, to within two kilometers per second. So only one in 500 stars is sitting at that frame uh, so precisely. And, uh, you know, it's sort of, uh, that's the, the frame you want to be in if you want to camouflage your origins, um, because then you cannot attribute the object to any particular star, because uh, <laughs> this is the standard of rest of the galaxy locally. And then, you know, this object is uh, very cold. Uh, and um, the, the fact that we discovered it, uh, is surprising because uh, I, I wrote a, a paper a decade ago estimating how many rocks should we find in the interstellar medium that enter the solar system. And we ended up with estimates that are 100 to 100 million times uh, smaller uh, than uh, needed to account for Oumuamua. So um, the fact that it exists means that uh, you need a, of the order of a thousand trillion objects per star to be ejected during the star's lifetime. And that's much more than uh, uh, the solar system is ejecting, you know, and uh, objects of this size of order tens of meters, 100 meters. Uh, and so it's surprising, even if it's from a natural origin, it's very surprising there are so many of them if it's one out of uh, many uh, random population. Uh, and, and of course, the trajectory that requires an extra force, according to the Nature paper by Michelle et al., that, that was the thing that triggered this, this latest paper that uh, that got the publicity, and um, the, the idea is that um, we don't, uh, you know, you could get, uh, in principle, you can get a push from a cometary tail uh, when ice evaporates on the background, on the surface of such an object. In a comet, that's what happens, but but uh, actually, we don't see any cometary tail, and uh, you need a significant fraction of, of the mass of this object to be evaporated, not to give it the push that, that is necessary. And also, uh, such a push is accompanied usually with a change in the rotation period of the object. That's what happens in, in comets. And we don't see such a change in the rotation period. 
So it, it seems uh, <clears throat> unlikely, very unlikely, that this uh, object is a, is a comet. And so the only other force I could um, think of is the radiation pressure from, from the sunlight. And, um, and then I suggested it to, to a postdoc that just arrived, uh, Shmuel Biali, and he was uh, excited about it. And, and we pursued it and, and calculated that the object needs to be thinner than a millimeter. Um, now, um, and of, of the size of uh, 20 meters or more. Yeah, it's sort of like going to the to the sh uh, shore, you know, and and, and looking at the seashells that were swept ashore, and um, you know, you look at all the seashells, and and, and one of them uh, looks like a plastic bottle, and then you realize, you know, maybe it's artificial in origin, and perhaps uh, in the context of of the solar system, you know, we sh we should just look at every object that enters that is coming from interstellar space. And that's one way of, of finding out whether we are alone or not. So the point is, this was not planned, the public uh, aspect of it. And, and uh, it's just like any other paper. If someone has a, an issue, then they should write a paper that suggests another explanation. And, and that let's see if it's more plausible. If it is, and based on the evidence, then I will be the first to admit it. I mean, the, I'm trying to, to figure out what's going on. And it's just that this object looks so weird to me that I have to say that, you know. Why should I tone that down if it looks weird to me? Uh, just because people don't like me saying that? I mean, that makes no sense. I know the data suggests what you're saying, right? But do you think personally, uh, with everything else, that it's more likely to be an odd natural thing or a normal uh, alien structure? I am completely agnostic. Uh, I would say, uh, in terms of probabilities, ahead of time, without looking at the data, just if someone told me we found the first interstellar object, obviously I would say natural, no doubt about it. And a decade ago, I wrote uh, the first paper, the only paper that was written back then in 2009, that was with Amara, Amaya Moro-Martin and Ed Turner. 2009, we wrote a paper that predicted how many interstellar uh, rocks should we see, asteroids. And that was the only paper that was written at the time uh, predicting uh, such objects, and we predicted far fewer. Now, so so it shows you that you know my psychology was obviously that natural things are the only thing are the only game in town. But when this object appears to be so strange, that's I have to point this out, and uh, that's my duty as a scientist. I don't see that as uh, any anything else. But uh, I would be very relieved, and I would be happy if it turns out to be natural. But then, of course, I said also that. Even if it's natural, I don't think it, it's likely to be uh, an outlier because the very first thing you see cannot be, I mean, statistically speaking, should not be an outlier. Uh, and that means that we don't understand something about the origin of this, of this population of objects. The, there is a new origin that we haven't figured out, and it's not the standard you know, ejection of objects from the outer Oort cloud of, of a planetary system the way we envision it. So right now, you know, the, the image, the mental image that I had when I wrote this paper to, in 2009 was, you know, there are, there are very loosely bound uh, Oort cloud uh, objects, uh, asteroids, and they get easily ripped apart from, from uh, stars. And, and those are the interstellar objects that we see. And, but, but it's not as simple as that, because this object looks very different than any other asteroid. And the number is much larger. And so, you know, let's try and figure out what it is, but it's not the standard picture. You're listening to Love and Science on BCFM Radio. Indeed you are. And that was Professor Avi Loeb uh, talking about the paper that he's put out about Oumuamua. 
the interstellar whatever it is is it an asteroid is it a comet is it a, a space sail a solar sail from a spacecraft or even a an interstellar uh, alien spacecraft come to check us out yeah it's an interesting aspect of the work actually because um they have to classify it as something and they get like a letter and a whole series of numbers based on the different properties that the things have obviously if, an, if it's an asteroid it starts with an a and if it's a comet it starts with a c um but correct me if i'm wrong here um i think they've actually brought in a new classification of interstellar objects okay. to describe it because they can't define it as an asteroid or a comet as mm. Andrew was outlining earlier. Because <laughs> um, it hasn't doesn't behave like either of those things. So this is a, an exciting example of how we have to change our current processes um, mm. as we get more information. Mm. I think it's an interesting thing that, that, that Avi was talking about there, which is... Um or should I say Professor Loeb was saying uh, earlier that uh, it, 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 if th this is the first one we've seen, and statistically speaking, it makes no sense for that to be an outlier. You see what I mean? Cause it, mm. Because it's so in, it would be so incredibly fortuitous for the first thing that we see to be out of the ordinary uh, in, a space, in space terms. It's out of the ordinary for us, but mm. in terms of what's out there in space, it would be out of the ordinary. But I kind of think that it, it, is, it is incredibly unlikely, therefore, for it to be an interstellar alien space, uh, spaceship because uh, unless there's loads of them, Right. Yeah. So, is the plan now to try and find more of them? Yeah. Is that what they're doing? I, yeah, I believe so. And I think, having spoken to Avi, I read the headlines. Right, and the headlines was some of the headlines went really far and said that uh, Harvard scientists had confirmed that it was of alien origin. Oh, media. Yeah. yeah. Clearly not true. And I thought, my, my initial reaction was, well, that's not true. I'm sure they've said nothing of the sort. When actually they have said something towards that, more than there's been said before, I think, from a proper scientific paper, right? Mm -hmm. Which is that this is so out of the ordinary. It's so odd. It's less than a millimetre thick, according to their measurements, right? Mm. And if it's less than a millimetre thick and it's sort of a reddish colour, it doesn't necessarily follow that it's an incredibly thin piece of alien metal. Obviously, it doesn't follow that, <laughs> right? But it, it can't be rock. It can't be rock at that mm. kind of thing. It, it, it can't be what we think it is. Now, it, obviously, it, it follows that maybe their measurements might be wrong, their readings might be wrong. That's possible. But if they aren't wrong, and he needs, and as Avi Loeb was saying, he, he, he come along and prove me wrong, I'm absolutely delighted to be proven wrong on this. But if we are wrong on that, if we're not wrong on that, then we don't know what it is. And we are developing, Avi Loeb himself, and this is an interesting point, right? So Avi Loeb is uh, part of the Breakthrough Initiative, which is, is it called Breakthrough? Um, which is uh, a Stephen Hawking and... Yuri Miller, I think his name is, a Russian billionaire, who are starshot, that's what it is, where they're going to take, send a huge number of uh, tiny spacecraft to Alpha Centauri, our local nearest star. And they, to get there, they're going to use solar sails. And mm. the, one of the people who's advising them on that is Avi Loeb, right? Mm. So I put that to him. I'm not going to play that what his response was, but I put that to him and said, so is, is that... Uh, why you're saying this are you saying this because you want to promote what you're doing uh with with 
solar sails technology right here on Earth. And he said, well, no, I didn't... We didn't do this as a press release thing. We didn't... It was... We did the science and then the university came along and said, can we press release this? Mm. And then the press picked it up. And he said, the, the, the thing is that you... It, it, somebody else probably wouldn't see that it could be a solar sail because somebody else doesn't know how solar sails work. He knows how solar sails work, so he looks at that and goes, well, it's possible. He's not saying it's a solar sail. He's saying that it fits with the data, that it could be. And, and he's working on this technology right here on Earth now. It's a real technology that is happening here. So it's not that far-fetched to think that... I mean, it is. Incre- don't get me wrong. It's incredibly far-fetched to think it's uh, an alien spacecraft. But it, it's, it's technology that exists here on Earth, mm-hmm. which could be replicated. If you think about how similar we are to uh, chimpanzees or... <laughs> if there is life in the universe, maybe it's not that different from us. Maybe it is producing solar cells. Maybe that is what we're mm-hmm. talking about here. But I'd always cautioning this with it can't be aliens it can't be how do, how, as a scientist Maddie. yeah well this is something that comes up time and time again because obviously as a scientist you're doing experiments or looking at new parts of the universe or whatever your realm is and you come across these results which we obviously if they don't fit with what we've seen before we call them an outlier um, or an anomaly um and you kind of, for want of a better phrase, essentially ignore it or repeat your experiments to see if it actually happens again. And the thing is that sometimes you get results and you keep repeating it and you keep getting the same thing. And you're like, okay, this doesn't fit with our current models or what we expect happen. Um, so maybe we need to consider that there's something else we haven't thought about, another factor at play here or something else outside of our kind of realm of what we know and understand already and this is how we make scientific progress um ultimately um i think the fact that um professor loeb is um working with these solar sails um again this is something that everybody does we base things on our own experience and what we've kind of been conditioned to think about or what we are most knowledgeable about knowledgeable about and everybody does this. In fact, I was listening to a podcast the other day talking about how to be more creative, we need to think more like two-year-olds <laughs> because they're so naturally inquisitive and they haven't got any kind of constraints on their thinking. And obviously when you're immersed in a particular field, such as you know, studying space, um, you're you know, some of the most knowledgeable people on the planet about these things. And it is tends to be only stuff to do with space where you've got a very sort of low frequency of you know, results which show these things um, that you can actually base new science off of only having, say, one result, as is the case here. But as you were saying, like, statistically, there should be a load more. But, you know, there's so much data coming through from space. How do we get through it all? Like, we are only human at the end of the day. Absolutely. And it is a not a very bright thing, this, right? You know, it's not, it's, it's big in terms of, uh, well, it's, we don't know exactly how big it is. It's, it's, it's a matter of metres long, and we're not exactly sure how many metres it is. Different people have said different things, right? Um, and it's not reflecting light uh, very much which is one of the reasons we know it's red is because of the spectral analysis that we've done of it, Mm. right? And um, we don't know what it is. 
I think that's the conclusion I've come to from all this. We don't think it's aliens. We know it's not uh, an asteroid, probably. Mm. We know but, it's not uh, yeah. a comet, probably. Until we can prove exactly what it is, this is our next best theory and yeah. idea. So we're going to go with that, yeah. as Avi himself said. Until someone comes up with something else and proves me wrong, which they're more than welcome to do, mm. um, that's what we're going to roll with, and this yeah. is what we're going to say it is. Yeah. So, uh, similarly to how I thought, well, I've got to get to the bottom of this, so I'm going to speak to Avi Loeb himself. The way to get to the bottom of what uh, Oumuamua is, is to take a spacecraft to it. Now, that might seem incredibly hard, but I spoke to a man, Andreas Hein, who's genuinely suggesting that we do that, and um, he is the lead scientist on something called Project Lyra. So what you want to send to Muamua is essentially um, instruments for doing scientific measurements. And when we did our study, it turned out that it's very important to send a telescope uh, to Umuamua. And the reason for this is that Umuamua is, very, is a very dim object, so it doesn't reflect much light back. So um, there have been different hypotheses why this is the case. So maybe seems to be that the surface has been degraded by um, interstellar radiation over like um, ten thousands or hundreds of thousands of years and that that might be the reason why the object appears like dimly reddish actually so um, detecting the object Oumuamua at very far distances from the sun is quite a challenge because it's so dim so you you can't actually see it and that's the reason why you need a telescope on the spacecraft in order to detect Oumuamua once, once you are close by. And you can do some calculations and the telescope needs to have size of you know, like 50 to 1 meter in diameter, but that's, that's, it's possible to, to develop such, such telescope for a spacecraft, but that's like the most important instrument. And then obviously you can do these optical um, observations in optical range, but then you can also think about um, taking images like in the infrared or other um, spectral, spectral bands. Another interesting idea was if you are really able to like rendezvous in a kind of precise manner or roughly precise, you could actually send an impactor. You can shoot an impactor from your main spacecraft to Oumuamua. The impactor would uh, like hit Oumuamua and then generate a cloud of dust particles. And then your main spacecraft could actually fly through this um, uh, dust um, kind of um, dust cloud and then actually uh, collect some of these dust particles and then find out uh, about the comp composition, interior composition of Oumuamua, which, which could be very interesting. Yeah. Oh. Well, a bit of a very bad thing to do if it was an alien spaceship, though, wouldn't it? I mean, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but you would probably know in advance if if it would be an alien spaceship because, um, yeah, it, you take some pictures from a distance, and um, then if if it's something sensitive, then <laughs> yeah. So. Well, what do you make of the um, uh, the the stories this week with the you know the yeah. Harvard scientists and stuff? What do you make yeah. of that? I, th I think it's a very interesting hypothesis, and at this point, because we only have limited data from the object itself, 
I think it's legitimate to also propose hypotheses that are like outside of classic hypotheses that have been forwarded to date, which were mostly like, okay, is Umumu an asteroid? Is it a comet? So I, I think it's legitimate to propose hypotheses that are outside of the scope of classic astronomy. But um, yeah, obviously the further data will might tell if this hypothesis is valid or not. You've proposed this as an idea. <laughs> you want to get people excited about it. Um, <laughs> why wouldn't they be excited about it? How does it go from that to being an actual mission? <laughs> yeah, this is a very good question because um, I think until about 10 years ago, I would have said that, okay, the only way forward would be to excite the scientific community about this and then um, getting this to pre primarily at, at NASA to get it into like a decadal survey. And then once on the decadal survey, it's like the planning for the next 10 years, then it would be like competing with alternative missions. And then, yeah, and then at that point, it would already be like too late. But um, we find more interesting, and this is a more recent development, is that there are also private organizations or sometimes foundations that uh, work towards actual space missions. I mean, I mean, one of them is like the Breakthrough Initiatives, for instance, but you can also imagine other, other foundations, organizations funding such missions, and they are much more flexible because they don't have to go through these, this like five, 10 years uh, negotiation process. And maybe, maybe a way to go is to get these organizations interested in it and then committing uh, funds to developing such a mission. Yeah, that's Andreas Hein talking about Project Lyra. So you're listening to Love and Science on BCFM Radio. I'm Andrew and I'm joined in the studio by Muddy Nichols and John Ford. Hello, John. Hello. How are you? I'm, I'm good, thank you, yeah. You're going to be getting Bristol home shortly? Yeah, after four o'clock, uh, here till seven with uh, all the essential information. Excellent. Mm. Before we do that, Maddy promised us an ultrasound story. Yeah, and it's ultrasound. Um, so this is some work that's been done at University College London on about 3,000 people over the last 15 years. And they've taken ultrasound scans of the blood vessels in their necks. And they found that people who have quite intense pulses, which I guess corresponds to their heartbeat, um, actually exhibit more cognitive decline. Okay. <laughs> which I'm not sure exactly. There wasn't really more information about mm. how that works, but... Um, yeah, but as always, everyone, uh, healthy diet, regular exercise and no smoking yeah. helps lower the chances of these things happening. So it's a, it's a sort of a, a, a way of telling earlier whether people are going to get dementia and things Apparently, like that. although when I looked a bit more closely at the study, they actually didn't have any data concerning dementia particularly. Um, mm. But yeah, just, I guess, being more forgetful and yeah. brain not functioning optimally, okay. which is... It's so tricky, isn't that. it? It's such a tricky mm. thing, dementia, to, to, to test for it early. It's such, we had uh, uh, Alfie Wern in here from Bristol University. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You were here for that episode, <laughs> I think, back in the day, talking about um, the, the importance of getting there early so that we can, uh, getting an early diagnosis so that things can be done about it. And 
developing the things to do about it seems to be the key thing to me. Mm. I mean, obviously, scientists are working on that. Yeah. Um, Work harder. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what ultrasound. That's why you're doing it, right? That's what yeah. your PhD um, is going to do in the future for other things. Um, I'm not. I'm not. Let's move on. Yeah, let's John, start. have we missed anything from? Um, you, from you've missed loads, but I've got 45 seconds, so oh. um, we'll do it after four o'clock. I'll, I'll do these. Um, I've got some news of what happened on this day uh, to do with space. Do you fancy a bit of that? I've got some pollution news oh. and fish news, oh. all science-related, all happened on this day in history. We'll do it after four o'clock. Brilliant. That's John Ford coming after the news. Thank you, Maddie, and thank you, everyone else, thank for you. listening. Malcolm will be with us next week. Love and science.